Uh, so we're going to be talking about uh, Kevin Smith today. What are your? Do you have any thoughts on Kevin Smith? Uh, I actually have a lot, a lot of thoughts <laughs> and kind of Kevin Smith related memories. Um, but there's one that that kind of stands out. Mm-hmm. Um, early in my courting period with my future wife, um, we would sometimes like read things to each other at night. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'd been watching, I think we'd watched maybe Dogma and Clerks fairly recently. And um, Clerks 2 had just come out on DVD around that time. And we kept kind of putting off watching it Mm -hmm. um, while we were planning to watch it. And so one night I was reading to her uh, some poetry from from this collection. Um, I think it's the poet Billy Collins is the was the writer and I was reading and she started to kind of uh, seem like she was, her breathing was changing and I was kind of checking to see if she was still listening and still awake. And I said, you know, do you want me to keep reading? Do you, do you like, do you like what I'm reading? And she said, if Jay and silent Bob are in it, it's gotta be good. (laughs) So, um, yeah, she she had apparently completely passed out um, <laughs> asleep, which listening to my voice can do. Uh, but but uh, like yeah, I, I guess uh, I guess we can count her as a as a fan then. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Ryan McClure. And I'm Justin Zyduck. And welcome to Indefensible Inc., the podcast where we take a closer look at some notoriously and allegedly terrible comics and comic runs. Today, we discuss Batman Cacophony, a three-part limited series from 2008 to 2009, written by Kevin Smith, with pencils by Walt Flanagan, inks by Sandra Hope, colors by Guy Major, and lettering by Jared K. Fletcher. So, if you uh, are not familiar with Kevin Smith, who's kind of the big-name creative force behind this limited series, uh, he is a director, a screenwriter, and podcaster, most famous for his View Askew universe of films, movies like Clerks, Mallrats, Chasing Amy, and Dogma that came out in the 90s and featured the recurring characters Jay and Silent Bob, the latter portrayed by Smith. Uh, really, it was kind of the one of the early shared universes on film in that. Yeah, one, so it was... I mean that was that was definitely his comics interest, sort of feeding into that. Yeah, it's pretty unique for the time. Smith and his movies were cult favorites for nerdy people coming of age in the '90s. Uh, his movies mixed the aimless slacker vibe of the culture with nerd culture in a way that was pretty unique for the time and also threw in a lot of profanity and sex jokes mall rats and chasing amy for me at least uh, and i think for a lot of people the first movies that i remember where the characters talked about comics in a way that demonstrated a real familiarity and passion for comics mm-hmm. um, which was a pretty big deal 
before nerd culture became basically the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, um, Mallrats name dropped Wolverine um, at once one point, and it was the first time I saw it, it was an amazing rush because I was like, oh my god, they mentioned Wolverine in a movie, and now like it's somewhat less impactful now that we have like seven movies about Wolverine, but. Mm-hmm. From there, Kevin Smith had kind of established his his nerd cred and made a natural transition to writing comics. Uh, but around 1999, when he began to work as a comics writer, it was pretty unheard of for anybody that was successful outside of the field to enter comics writing. Mm-hmm. So when the Mar- then Marvel editor Joe Quesada brought in Smith to write an an eight-issue Daredevil run. It was was a major event and selling point. So it's a little bit hard to find any uh, contemporary commentary on the Daredevil run from when it was released, but it was a huge success with fans. And season three of the recent Daredevil Netflix show took inspiration from it in a few episodes and episode titles. And according to James Kelly at sequentialart.org, it was one of the titles that helped pull Marvel back from the brink of bankruptcy. Yeah, I mean, I think think the whole um, push with that and the other Marvel Knights books at the time were really what um, turned Marvel around. And that's why Joe Quesada got the editor-in-chief job, because he was able to bring in a name like Kevin Smith. Yeah, it makes you wonder, was... So without Kevin Smith, would that be mean no Marvel Cinematic Universe? I I have I have uh, and maybe I'll save this for later, but I have a big theory that Kevin Smith is way more important, like influential in comics than he maybe even thinks about. Mm. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> yeah. So Kevin Smith uh, then went on to write a revival of Green Arrow um, at DC. He wrote more Daredevil. Uh, few spider-man uh, limited series before moving on to batman cacophony and cacophony features a character onomatopoeia created by smith during his run on green arrow so we got we get some kind of criticism from from the time regarding cacophony jesse shadeen of ign felt conflicted with the first issue citing a good script and comparing smith to grant morrison saying Smith manages to, manages to find a fresh voice for one of the industry's most heavily exposed characters. But Shadeen also wrote that the villains were the focus, with the Joker the most prominent. He criticized tra- Smith's trademark scatological humor and said that Smith's characterization of Batman was, quote, too wordy. Shadeen also states that Flanagan's art varied in trying to portray the Joker's emotions. Uh, so the overall score Shadeen gave the first issue was an 8.3. So overall pretty good. And this, I should say that was all basically quoted from Wikipedia. So I'm <laughs> citing somebody else there. Um, but the, the book itself was another hit and it became a New York Times bestseller when it was collected as a trade paperback. So at the time there was a lot of at least fan love and, and some good reviews for Smith's work. Uh, but over the last maybe decade or so, it seems like there's kind of been a reappraisal where people are kind of look back, looking back at his Green Arrow and Daredevil runs and thinking about was it did these books get so much praise because it was a new thing to have a celebrity non-comics writer take over a book? Mm-hmm. 
There are people who question some of the decisions he made, such as in Daredevil, spoiler alert, uh, killing off the longtime Daredevil character Karen Page. Mm-hmm. So Cacophony is one of those storylines that people are now looking back on and wondering if it actually holds up and really was any good. And so with that spirit, we're, we're going to take a look at it today. Issue 1 opens on Arkham Asylum as a mysterious masked figure in a trench coat scales the front gate, enters the building using a grappling hook, and takes out guards with tranquilizer darts. Um, While this break-in unfolds over about three pages, we get some narration that gives us some backstory here. Apparently the board of directors at Arkham Asylum decided as a cost-cutting measure in the wake of the recession, uh, because this was published in uh, 2009, remember, Uh, to get rid of some guards' jobs at the front gate under the theory that nobody ever breaks into Arkham. The board then divided the money saved by eliminating the position amongst themselves in the form of bonuses. But one of the guards, who was resentful at being laid off, uh, decided to sell his knowledge of Arkham security, presumably to the masked figure who's breaking in now. So I do like the idea of a disgruntled Arkham guard, um, all the dangerous stuff and knowledge that they would have, you know, at their... uh, at their, at their fingertips. Mm-hmm. And I sort of wish this, that's what this story was about. And also in theory, I should be a hundred percent on board for a story where the real villain is capitalism, but I'm not sure that this makes any sense. So like is Arkham privately run or like a state run? Cause it is like a, meant to be like a hospital, at least in theory. Mm-hmm. And then even if the jobs were cut because there was a budget shortfall, you can't just like give yourself the money. Like I mean, you could, but, uh, like, if there really was a budget shortfall, because they make it sound like it was directly because of the uh, because of the recession that they had to mm-hmm. cut these jobs, you can't just divvy that. Does this <laughs> does that make any sense? I feel like it's yeah, a, no, it's definitely like bonuses are a private sector thing, yeah. so it doesn't really make sense unless we assume you know it's a uh, a privately run organization but yeah it's maybe a good well-intentioned but gets kind of lost in the the finer details yeah i also take issue with the notion that supposedly nobody ever breaks into arkham because i think that happens you know from time to time like i've read comics that open with you know like we gotta bust the boss out of prison and they you know take a helicopter or whatever and like and actually isn't that what bane does in um nightfall is that he like breaks into arkham and everybody else so they have like a they have a case just you know a case that you can point to of like this is a time mm-hmm. when a guy broke into Ar- arkham also like the front gate might be like a last line of defense against breakouts which actually does happen all the time at, at arkham mm-hmm. asylum i like the idea of like a guard who is standing at the door and like the the, the riddlers trying to run <laughs> past them and they're like you got to stop that guy and he's like I only deal with break-ins, not break-outs, okay? Talk to the union. (laughs) Yeah, so we're questioning already, but it's a a good swing. Um, So Mm -hmm. the trench coat guy finds the Joker's cell, and the Joker is there reading Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. And again, I'm all for taking a crack at Ayn Rand's expense, but I'm not sure I quite get the intent here. Is it that, like... The Joker is crazy, and you have to be crazy to be into Ayn Rand, or... 
is it just sort of a nihilist like thing uh either or <laughs> so the uh the joker goes pretty scatological um he says that if he knew he was going to have company he'd have put on his green merkin um if you're not familiar with this term uh you can google it but not at work or in class uh, he also says the reason that his cell is behind bulletproof glass is because he was in a cell with bars previously, but he threw, quote, one measly piece of poo at a guard. Um, he mentions that the poo had razor blades in it. Uh, he also makes a joke about how inmates at Arkham aren't allowed to read Family Circus in the comics page because it riles up the child molesters there. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I believe that we are dealing with the Jared Leto Joker here. <laughs> This is very mm-hmm. much a Joker who's trying to impress you with how edgy he is. Yeah. Yep, he's just missing the forehead tattoos. Yes. <laughs> but a uh, trench coat guy stands revealed as the Batman villain and former Suicide Squad member Deadshot, who has been hired to kill the Joker. Apparently, another Gotham criminal named Maxi Zeus, who we'll talk about more in a few minutes, uh, has been diluting Joker toxin and selling it as a tr- club drug called Chuckles. Uh, Deadshot was hired by the father of a kid who died after freaking out on Chuckles. Uh, Deadshot blows up the bulletproof glass and is going to kill the Joker, but another masked man in a trench coat, and this is Onomatopoeia, is either already there, or maybe he followed Deadshot in? That's not entirely clear. Do you have a do you, do you have an interpretation of that? Uh, I do not. <laughs> Onomatopoeia is there, for whatever reason. Uh, Deadshot and Onomatopoeia trade gunfire and Onomatopoeia appears to get the drop on Deadshot because he shoots him point blank in the head and a huge gush of blood and everything shoots out of his forehead. Um, Onomatopoeia, we should say, um, has a gimmick. Um, He has sort of a blank featureless mask with sort of two concentric circles on them. Um, and his deal is that he repeats all the sound effects in the comics. So, like, when his when he shoots the guns and the sound effects go blam, blam, he actually says out loud, blam, blam. There's breaking glass. He'll go key rash or whatever. So that's, yeah, that's Onomatopoeia's deal. It's it's helpful if you're trying to learn uh, literary terms for your <laughs> yes. ninth grade poetry paper. Yes. Uh, Onomatopoeia helps the Joker escape and offers him a briefcase full of money. Joker seems to think he's being propositioned sexually and tells Onomatopoeia he, quote, bottoms from the top and makes some jokes about how the Mad Hatters wanted to do this as well. Uh, but Onomatopoeia leaves. It's, I mean, this is, you know, Kevin Smith being kind of a the sexual humor guy. Don't feel totally great about, like, the sort of, you know, ha-ha, the Mad Hatter is gay or something or, you know, or whatever he's getting at here. Um, I will say that when Automatopia leaves, Joker says seduced and abandoned, which actually was like the one Joker line in this issue that I actually laughed at. Uh, elsewhere, the serial killer, Mr. Zaz has killed a couple in their beds. Uh, Zaz's deal is that he makes a tally mark on his skin every time that he kills someone, uh, much like the mantra villain notch in our, in our recent episode. Um, but art-wise, uh, Zaz is covered in what must be like hundreds of very small, dense marks all over his body. Just doing like a count of like the, you know, the grouped by five, there was like two hundred some like on his arm and his back alone. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I looked it up, and I'm sure I'm on a list now, but, like, conventional serial killers are not really that prolific. The most prolific serial killer on record is Harold Shipman with 218 proven, possibly as many as 250. But, like, serial killers don't really get out of jail all that often mm-hmm. and kill literally hundreds of people, so. And Batman has, I assume, prevented a number of them, so it's like, even with Batman, he's killing that many? Yeah, and apparently he's, like... Here he's like, he, he apparently broke into this couple's home and stabbed them in their beds or whatever. So, like, he's doing this one at a time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because we are going for these scatological jokes in this series, uh, Zaz all of a sudden realizes that he skin is pretty much marked up with all the places that it, the tallies could possibly go. The only place he has left to mark his skin is on his wang. Um, at that moment, Batman bursts through, and his narration refers to it jokingly as a bris. And he thinks to himself, Baruch Haba, scumbag, proving that Batman can make an action catchphrase out of a Hebrew blessing, but only internally. <laughs> he, would not, he wouldn't say that out loud. He just thinks mm-hmm. the action movie Hebrew blessing. Um, so Batman is able to beat up Mr. Zaz before he can harm the couple's children. Um, Batman has some angst about how the children are orphans now, like him. Um, this scene is trying pretty hard to be disturbing and I don't know it's got it sort of leans on like that sort of thing about these serial killers are crazy and babbling in like a quote unquote interesting way I I I, I yeah. this scene was a bit much I thought especially with the the tonal shift from all the joker quote jokes <laughs> yeah previous scene so after uh, Zaz is taken care of. Commissioner Gordon calls Batman to the scene of the Joker's escape in Arkham, and he gives him the standard Commissioner Gordon briefing about what they know so far. Meanwhile, in an ambulance, the supposedly dead Deadshot unzips himself from his body bag, but he finds Batman waiting for him. It turns out the Deadshot has extra padding in his helmet and a blood squib so that if someone shoots him in the head, he can play possum, and apparently his costume is marked masking his vital signs and stuff so he's actually alive that actually is kind of clever because i remember reading the preview um when this first came out they posted the you know the couple of preview pages that you get online and it looks like in the the first couple of pages onomatopoeia kills deathstroke and everybody was mad that kevin smith's his like pet villain got to kill off this like long-standing popular character just to establish Mm -hmm. that he's like the badass but yeah, he sort of, he sort of gets to have his cake and eat it too, I guess. So props. Uh, Deadshot fills Batman in on the rest of the plot so far, all the stuff about Chuckles that we've just talked about. Um, from there, we cut to a media interview with Maxi Zeus. Maxi Zeus is a uh, like a C level or like D level uh, Batman villain, depending I guess depending on when you read. Um, who has a psychotic break where he believes himself to be literally like the Greek god Zeus, but, you know, wearing a business suit or something. Um, Maxi claims in the interview that he is on medications that suppress his illusions, and he has reinvented himself as a legitimate businessman. The interviewer uh, mentions the rumors that Maxi is connected to the Chuckles drug epidemic. Uh, Maxi responds that he's uh, these allegations are part of um, ethnic discrimination because he's Greek, and therefore a foreigner, and blames, quote, old white men running the country, end quote, for scapegoating him. So this, I think, is a really misjudged scene, because, like, 
Maxi Zeus is guilty here, and without like intending to, I'm sure, Kevin Smith has like created an affirmation of the myth of like playing the race card. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. So like, because yeah, it's like, it's... if you have Two Face like make a really impassioned plea about how we need to improve the nation's like interstate infrastructure, right before he blows up a building. That's going to reflect poorly on like whatever kind of point about roadways you might want to make, unless it's from it's like his the good half of his his face. <laughs> yeah, he, he flips the coin, it ends, it lands unscarred side up, and like now I'm going to talk to you about roads, but now I'm going to flip it again, yeah. and now I blow up the hospital. Yeah, the interview is interrupted when Maxie gets a call from the Parthenon, which is a fancy uh, school that Maxie Zeus has founded, and where his own nephew goes. The Joker, it turns out, has infiltrated the school and has taken the children hostage. So Maxi Zeus gets down there. Um, they have a conversation. We learn that the Joker has entrusted Maxi Zeus with some of his Joker toxin um, before the last time that he was thrown in Arkham. And he left instructions with Maxi Zeus that he was supposed to randomly Jokerize Gothamites on April 1st so that Batman would have to come to Arkham to investigate, at which point the Joker would yell, April Fools! But instead, Maxie cut the venom to make chuckles. Joker is not happy at the betrayal. Maxie Zeus is telling him, like, hey, we got all this, like, legitimate money or semi-legitimate money rolling in. We should just deal, you know, enjoy that. But the Joker, as you can imagine, says that he doesn't care about money and power like Maxie does. He just wants to have a good time to annoy Batman whenever possible. And then he says to one day murder Batman and defile his carcass sexually, and a pony. So, Joker announces a gang war, and his opening salvo is that he blows up the school, killing Maxie Zeus's nephew and his classmates. So again, with tonal shifts, like, as we read the, re- the remainder of this, I think it's worth keeping in mind that, like, the Joker pretty casually murdered, like, a classroom full of children. It kind of yes. hangs over the series a bit, in my opinion. Yeah, and it definitely, I'd say, reads differently in 2019 than it did Yeah, back in 2009, unfortunately. So, yeah. yeah. On that cheery note, <laughs> yeah. do we have a next issue? Uh, we do. open on people partying at Maxi Zeus's club called Olympus. A DJ named DJ Might is playing, and that's Might, M-I-T-E. Uh, he's wearing a mask that resembles the Batman character Batmite. Uh, I, what, what exactly was Batmite again? Uh, Batmite was the, um, he was a fifth dimensional imp. He was like Batman's biggest fan in the fifth dimension and came mm-hmm. to earth and like caused trouble. Cause so he's like basically like the Batman's Mr. Mix's flick. So the, the, the DJ is playing and not surprisingly pulls off the mask to reveal that it's actually the Joker in disguise having killed the real DJ. Mm-hmm. The Joker sets off some kind of incendiary device and the club breaks out in flames Maxi Zeus sees the flames closing in on him, but Batman bursts in to save Maxi Zeus. 
Batman and the Joker fight. Uh, Batman manages to beat the Joker up and is about to take him into custody when a mysterious figure comes out of nowhere and shoots Batman in the shoulder. And it's onomatopoeia again. And Batman thinks they're running out of gimmicks and kinks, these idiots. He'll have plenty of time to think of a new one in Blackgate. So I, I wonder if this has been a scene in any Batman story or parody, but... I want to see a scene where, like, somebody's just sitting down kind of workshopping different ideas for their (laughs) new crime gimmick or theme. Just blue sky in here, people. (laughs) Well, like, clearly Onomatopoeia has because, like, he doesn't seem to have, like, a reason that he does the sound effects. It's just he just seems to think that it's cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, because I can see the the brainstorming. Like, what if I just said all the sound effects don't exist in real life, but I'm making the sound effects? And he's like, yeah, that's great. Yeah, so... Even Batman thinks that that it's not the greatest gimmick in the world. Yeah, which is which is kind of funny because like Kevin Smith came up with onomatopoeia, so I guess that's sort of get, getting ahead of the narrative. Yeah, it's like yeah. I, I created this as a Green Arrow villain, but Batman thinks my villain is really lame. Uh, however, uh, writing about onomatopoeia has taught me how to actually spell this word, so that's, <laughs> that's a nice side effect. I think on the notes, I spelled it differently every time. <laughs> So Onomatopoeia slashes Batman with a knife, and before Batman can go after him, the roof collapses in one place, cutting off Batman's uh, route to Onomatopoeia. Batman then decides he has to save Joker before the roof collapses, and I don't know that it's 100% clear, but we just saw like a number, like a bunch of crowd bur- people getting lit on fire basically or like running in terror yeah and are we to believe that like batman isn't trying to save any of them before (laughs) saving the joker yeah i mean there's there's priorities even if they're severely burned it's it's like you know they can still live and um but he's he's uh intent on saving the joker which he does who are who are who are we to question batman i suppose that is true. Um, Batman makes his choice back in the Batcave, though, uh, or later on in the Batcave. Alfred is patching up, uh, patching up Bruce Wayne, and Batman is investigating, trying to investigate Onomatopoeia. He finds out that he tried to kill the second Green Arrow and two lesser-known vigilantes in Pennsylvania. And they have a little conversation. Um, there's a little conversation between Alex or between Alfred and Bruce. So they're watching too much Jeopardy. And uh, <laughs> Batman is talking about how he matched the slugs with the Green Arrow shooting with the bullets used to kill the Pennsylvania vigilantes. Alfred asks him how he got the slugs from the Green Green Arrow shooting. And Batman says, I liberated them from Star City General shortly after the incident. So my takeaway from this is that Batman is going to other cities and like raiding their evidence lockers. Yeah. <laughs> when and this wasn't even like an this wasn't even a successful murder. This was an attempted <laughs> murder. And it's not local. Yeah. He, he had to fly like... out to wherever Star City is relative to Gotham City. Mm-hmm. And like break into a police station that he's probably not familiar with. It just seems like He's not making the best use of his time, um, <laughs> and and also and also like 
the police station probably needs that evidence. Like, <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know, what if what if he came back and like they had another bullet and they're like, oh, we should match this to the one from before. And then you open it up mm-hmm. and it's like Batman's calling card is in there. Like, I got this. Yeah. Yep. Please call Batman. There's, they have a thing on the roof. There's a light. Mm-hmm. Yep, he just sank some poor DA's case. <laughs> uh, however, Batman is able to surmise that Onomatopoeia is someone who uses or who hunts non-superhuman vigilantes and was maybe trying to free the Joker to use him as bait to lure in Batman. Yeah, and uh, Bruce says, um, talking about Onomatopoeia's motivations, if you harbored fantasies of hero killing, you'd have little hope of taking down Superman or Wonder Woman. And like, this is the biggest self-own I think I've ever heard from Batman in any medium. To say, like, because mm-hmm. you know, like, usually he's sort of, you know, there's the whole thing in like Dark Knight Returns where like he tries to prove himself Superman's equal. Mm-hmm. Here he's admitting, like, oh yeah, you would, you could not take out Superman, but like me, you you have a chance. <laughs> so, yeah, is yeah. some unexpected humility from, from the Batman. Yeah, so I mean, maybe he's feeling a little, little down on himself after, after he let twenty people burn to death. <laughs> um, he then says to Alfred, uh, "I want you to keep Tim." So that's the. the the then Robin at the time. I want you to keep Tim as far away from this as possible, Alfred. Keep him in the dark on this one. Because if my theory is correct, I'm being hunted. And I feel like Batman keeping things from Robin to protect him or like keeping keeping him away from danger is a Batman trope that always like backfires. Yeah. Um, I don't see how this is necessarily all that more dangerous than like every other villain they ever, they ever fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess onomatopoeia is just too, too much of a threat. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm actually surprised that it doesn't end or it doesn't result in like a scene of him and Robin arguing, which usually it does, but I, maybe Kevin Smith just like didn't want to write Robin. Because I guess with all with all like the sex jokes, perhaps it reads poorly if it's coming out of like a sixteen year old or however however old Tim Drake is. Yeah, we don't get that confrontation, but Maxi Zeus, however, has gone off his meds and is in full Greek god delusion mode. He demands that his men find the Joker. He is, he, uh, slipped, he slipped into a pattern of sort of talking like, "Thou sh- you know thou must do this and that." Um, his mm-hmm. Full Shakespearean dialogue is not very good. I wouldn't say that I'm an, like an expert on the syntax of on that kind of syntax, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know if it's that Maxi Zeus is supposed to be like because you would think that like if your whole delusion was based on that you were a Greek god. First of all, I think you would you would talk in Greek. <laughs> second of all, if you're going to do the old timey English thing, I think you would like study up on how the construction works. Hmm. Yeah, he he really needs to commit more to his to his gimmick. Well, it's just really half-assed. I mean, <laughs> I'm disappointed yeah. here. So he's is yelling at his his henchmen, but then his henchmen kind of distract him with some with a bevy of babes. Uh, at that point, Batman breaks into Maxi Zeus's home and doses him with a needle of antipsychotics to get him lucid. 
And Batman lays out for Maxi Zeus how this whole drug scheme has destroyed so many lives, including getting his nephew killed in Joker's school attack. And uh, at that point, Maxi Zeus actually decides to turn himself in and turn federal witness. And this is all part of Batman's plan because he's hoping to lure in the Joker using Maxi Zeus. I am kind of amused at the idea that, like, there would be any value in the feds working with Maxi Zeus to convict the Joker because it's like the Joker's in <laughs> the Joker's in Arkham Asylum. He's supposed to be in Arkham Asylum. Mm-hmm. I don't think you need more evidence about against the Joker <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's like what information is he going to give you? That's right, it's going to be helpful. Um, yeah, apparently the feds uh, didn't really think that one through too much. No. <laughs> Cut to a hotel, a random hotel room where Onomatopoeia is there with a sex worker and he decides to murder her with a knife. Uh, we get the, we get this mostly from his POV since the artwork is still trying to keep his identity a mystery, presumably to a big reveal, which we'll get to. Um, Joker, meanwhile, arrives at, at GCBD headquarters to try to kill Maxi Zeus on a rooftop. And Batman, of course, is there, prevents Joker from doing so, throws some serious shade at Joker by telling him he's basically gotten predictable and that he wouldn't even be in Batman's top 15 villains anymore. So uh, Joker loses. He's handcuffed to the bat signal, and Batman tells him that he's baked. And at that moment, Onomatopoeia appears and shoots the bat signal. And we learn that uh, this is all going according to Batman's plan of luring him out. So the final issue of the miniseries opens with a standoff between Batman and Onomatopoeia. The Joker is doing his usual wacky banter, or I guess... Kevin Smith's usual wacky banter and stabs Batman in the thigh with a shard of glass from the bat signal. This gives onomatopoeia sort of the, the edge or the, the opportunity to shoot Batman in the head, blood spurting everywhere, double page spread. Uh, the Joker's upset because of, as he's mentioned before, he wants to be the one to kill Batman. Uh, But of course, Batman is not dead. He uh, takes onomatopoeia by surprise and appears to break his wrist we find out that Batman has appropriated Deadshot's armored mask and blood squib uh, trick. He says, "Hate to adapt one of their adopt one of their innovations, but hell, a good idea is a good idea." Um, the idea that Batman is covered in blood squibs also comes up a few years later in Neil Adams' Batman Odyssey, which, if you remember, one of our first episodes we covered in excruciating detail. <laughs> uh, so Batman and Onomatopoeia get into a fist fight. And it started to rain now, and the Joker compares it to the end of Lethal Weapon, because, of course he does. Uh, Batman seems to get the upper hand in the fight, and the Joker decides to declare a supervillain team-up. But at that moment, Onomatopoeia stabs the Joker in the heart and runs away. Um, Batman thinks to himself, it's a test. He wants to see what I'll do. Save the Joker or chase his killer. Onomatopoeia escapes while Batman holds the Joker's body until Commissioner Gordon arrives. So can I say this is like no choice at all from just like a mechanical, like logistical standpoint? Because like 
we're about to wade into the ethics about whether this is the right choice soon enough, but uh, Gordon and his men are on the roof immediately. Like, <laughs> it's not like you have to, like, take him to the hospital because there's nobody else who can do it. You leave mm. the Joker with them when you go after the bad guy. Like, Batman is being stupid on purpose. And like this sort of goes back yeah. to the thing about what we were just talking about with where he saves the Joker from the um, the burning, you know, the bur- burning building. But, like, mm. all, all of the victims are like, eh, they'll probably be fine. It does seem like he's making a lot of effort to save the Joker, which only, I'm sure, bolsters the sort of, like, Batman needs the Joker narrative that goes on. So, yeah, that makes no sense. Just, like, from a practical standpoint, Joker would would be totally fine. They can put him in the ambulance. They have a siren so people will get out of their way. (laughs) It's really the best person you could leave a stabbing victim with is, like, the cops or an EMT or something. But, Mm -hmm. um once Gordon arrives, they have the ethical discussion about whether it's okay to save the Joker. Gordon's position is to let him die. He says, think of all the horror he's put Gotham through. What he did to Barbara, that's Barbara Gordon, the former Batgirl, uh, what he did to you. I know you live by a code and I'd never ask you to break it, but I'm not asking you to kill him. I'm just asking you not to save him. You didn't do this. You didn't stab him. This is his doing. He made his choices. But Batman says he can't make choices, Jim. He's insane. So Batman makes his choice and apparently gets Joker into the hospital because we open up five months later on the day that the Joker emerges from a coma. Um, A lawyer from the firm of Malone and Malone shows up to the hospital claiming to be the Joker's attorney and needs, um, you know, confidential private talk with his client. Um, He gains access to the hospital room, but Joker immediately determines that it's Batman in disguise and um, he tells him to change into his real face. The Joker has a pretty uh, scraggly, gross beard in this scene. Like he's been, so he's mm-hmm. he's been like in his you know in his hospital bed for like five months. Um, he does not grow an attractive, full beard. He draws like a, a scraggly like mess of. It actually upset me looking at it. I'm just like, yeah, yeah. I actually found this image of the Joker more disturbing than when he got his face sliced off and reattached <laughs> in, in like that recent, fairly recent run. Yeah. So, uh, matches Malone ducks behind a curtain and chain. And by the way, I don't know if, if you know about this, but matches Malone is like an, like an old timey alias that Batman used to use as like a, like a fake criminal, you know, like he would always carry around matches because mm-hmm. Batman wouldn't even smoke if he's, if he's undercover, but he carries the matches cause that's cool. But, um, oh, yeah, so yeah, so he ducks behind a curtain and changes into his clothes to become Batman. The Joker is on, quote, an ass load of mood stab- stabilizers and antipsychotics. So he is actually semi-psychologically coherent right now. Um, Batman mentions that he's seen the Joker in this state before once, when the Martian Manhunter temporarily used his uh, telepathy to reorganize the Joker's brain and make him sane. That's a reference to the JLA story, uh, Rock of Ages, by Grant Morrison and Howard Porter. I recommend you read it. It's great. Um, But one thing that that brings up is that in that story, the Martian Manhunter says um, it's a great strain to make the Joker sane and he can't hold it for long. But at this hospital, they apparently have drugs that are seemed to do a pretty good job of keeping him sane now. So my question is, why is he not on these drugs all the time? (laughs) Like it's the Joker. If you're going to spend the money to like keep anybody in some sort of antipsychotics, Mm-hmm. Should probably be the second most prolific mass murderer, apparently, 
second to Mr. Zaz or whatever, but yeah, I think they should at least give it a shot. It's like, I mean, it's it's working. Like we have we have proof that it's working. Mm-hmm. That's it's really dose them up, but yeah, I I guess. Um, so Batman has decided to take advantage of Joker being in a halfway decent state of mind to ask to sort of have like a heart to heart. Um, and ask the Joker if he really and honestly wants to kill Batman. The Joker turns the question around on Batman. And so Batman has to admit that, you know, he has, you know, dreamed about the Joker dying, sort of maybe if when he parachuted onto Gotham headquarters, the parachute had ripped and he pancaked himself on the cement. But he says, seeing the knife in his chest, he, uh, Batman just couldn't let it happen. He says, I've watched people die before obviously referring to his parents. I swore then, never again. My whole life, all of this, it's all because I never want to see death firsthand again. Unless it's, uh, you know, burn victims at the at the nightclub. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, the Joker actually says that he's sorry for, um, and this is how you can tell the Joker's, you know, in a state, is that he says he's sorry for whatever trauma turned Bruce into the Batman. But then he says... I do want to kill, you know, I do want to kill you, Batman. I don't hate you because I'm crazy. I'm crazy because I hate you. And he says that once he kills Batman, he will stop hurting people and turn himself in, and they will both know peace. So we leave in this sort of haunting moment, but then he says, of course, it's a Kevin Smith comic. He says that when Batman was getting changed, the Joker saw, he says, I saw a little bit of your junk. Which begs the question that, like, does Batman get all the way nude when he changes into the bat suit? Cause, hmm. cause like, like, you know, you would, if he doesn't do the thing of like Superman where like he opens up his shirt and the, this costume is on underneath. Yeah. He gets like all the way nude. Like, cause there's, you can't even wear like, briefs. I think there's probably some fan fiction that would answer <laughs> this question for us. I guess I don't want to check that out. So yeah. So mysteries of the mechanics of, what exactly Batman is wearing under it at any time, really. Um, but back in the Batcave, Alfred and Bruce have a heart to heart. Among other things, Alfred says that Bruce coddles his villains too much and suggests that Batman would grow restless without criminals to pursue. But then Alfred asks Bruce um, about onomatopoeia, you know, what his deal is. And Bruce says that he's, he, you know, he's been trying to figure it out. He wonders what's onomatopoeia's deal what does he do when he's not hunting heroes? How does he spend his time? Does he live with people? Do they know who he is? Uh, the answer is shown to us, but not to Batman. Onomatopoeia apparently goes home to a generic suburban house where he has a wife and two kids and a dog. Uh, the injuries that he suffered at Batman's hands, the broken wrists, he explains away with a cast and like a broken tennis racket. Uh, he retires to his basement and pulls a book to trigger a secret passageway revealing a big display of masks um, which is apparently the trophies that Onomatopoeia kills uh, Onomatopoeia keeps from the heroes that he's killed we see the masks of the aforementioned Buckeye and Virago but also unseen characters like Brother Black, Lady Justice and the I think this is an original creation of his the Phantom Jockey like mm. like a horse racing jockey I, I would like to know more about this guy yeah But yeah, so he looks at the empty display case that he built for Batman's mask, which suggests that at some point they will meet again one day, and that's where we leave it. 
Um, so I have to ask you, did you read this digitally or did you get the, the trade? I read this digitally. So the, the trade has an introduction where he, um, Kevin Smith talks about a little bit about like, we set out to make like the best Batman story we could, but then once we did, we thought of a better one, which is not very encouraging for an introduction to be like, this is our, the second best thing we can think of. But um, he says in there that he and uh, the artist, Walt Flanagan, are coming back for a 12-issue miniseries called Widening Gyre. Um, this was planned to be released in two sets of six issues, and the first six issues are released in, I think, 2010, and the second six issues never, ever materialized. But apparently, Onomatopoeia will be back. I will wait with bated breath. <laughs> You're going to be waiting a while. Waiting, waiting a while. Kevin Smith is, is, if you're not aware of this, he's uh, out there in Radio Land. He's very notorious for like not making comic book deadlines because he has a Hollywood job and like all that sort of stuff. So like, there's actually a, a Daredevil um, miniseries that he did back when the movie, the Ben Affleck movie, came out. And he wrote like one or maybe two issues, and then like never again. So, yeah, yeah. This is another one of those that's just sort of hanging out there, and eventually he might finish it. It ends, I believe, uh, I understand, on a pretty significant cliffhanger for a long-standing uh, character. So that character has pretty much just been in a lot of serious trouble for about nine years now. So what are you? What were your thoughts on the series as a whole? Um, you know, it's sort of. I liked a lot of bits of it. I liked the idea of the guy getting laid off from Arkham and selling his knowledge. I liked Maxi Zeus turning Joker Venom into a drug and like that kind of like recontextualizing something that we already know and using it <laughs> in a unique way. I think Onomatopoeia is kind of a neat um, gimmick. You know, it's maybe a limited concept, but you know the. The saying blam, blam, blam is kind of fun. One of those like, mm-hmm. magic of comics things. Um, but I feel like the series is kind of torn between like Batman fights this new villain, which is a totally acceptable thing for a comic to be about. Mm-hmm. But the villain doesn't actually do a whole lot other than, sh- than shoot guns and stab people. Like he doesn't have like an amazing master plan. Yeah. And he's, I mean, he's just like a really good guy with guns and a knife. I feel All like, right. I feel like Batman, like, he must be really good if, like, he's giving Batman trouble because, like, Batman presumably fights people with guns and knives all the time, but mm-hmm. also, like, you know, Martians and <laughs> supervillains and, you know. Yeah. But. Um, clay monsters. Yes, clay monsters. Crocodile men. <laughs> but, like, this guy has, like, he's, he shoots very well, I'll have you know. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so, yeah. like, it's, so it's, it's sort of torn between this, like, Batman fights a new villain thing, but also, like, wanting to tell that definitive Batman and Joker story that like everybody who writes Batman wants to tell. Right. What do you, what do you, what were your thoughts? Yeah, it's, it does seem like I, I liked a lot of the, the elements you mentioned. Like I, I did like the reveal of onomatopoeia at the end where he's this ordinary suburban yeah. person. And uh, you mentioned the, the kind of Arkham guard thread and the, the reuse of, the Joker's uh, Venom in this new way. Uh, actually, it reminded me of that Batman the Animated Series episode where the Joker gets mad at that casino right. owner for using his likeness and like goes after him just for that reason. Mm-hmm. But I think it seems like 
like you were saying that they set up this new character, but then it really just becomes kind of rehashing the Batman and Joker dynamic. Yeah. And uh, like a lot of it is stuff that we've already like heard in like the killing joke. Mm-hmm. And we know that Kevin Smith has read the killing joke because he references it in here and he has, it's in the introduction. Like we've already had yeah. that, like Batman and Joker sort of talk out their, their feelings. And I don't know that it adds a whole lot. Yeah. And, and just what did you think about the, the characterization of the Joker in this, <laughs> in this series? Oh, uh, it, it, I mean, it, it, it bugged me. Um, you, you know, you sort of hear the Joker like a certain way, like in your head. Mm-hmm. So it's either like Mark Hamill from the cartoon or Cesar Romero from Adam West or whoever is your personal Joker. And like, mm-hmm. I couldn't like really make the joke, like the, cause he's, he's writing in like Kevin Smith's voice here. And I yep. couldn't really make him sync up with any Joker that I had heard before or was familiar with until right. I started thinking about him as Jason Lee from Mallrats and Chasing Amy. And if I thought about the Jason, mm. about the Joker as Jason Lee, it was like, all this dialogue makes sense now. It's just not something I've ever associated with a Joker. I never thought I would would I would never think about casting him in that role in a million years. But now <laughs> I really want to see it. Well, yeah, I mean, because that's one of the things about Jason Lee was that he was always very good about like. So Kevin Smith writes not like natural dialogue necessarily, but um, some actors have like sort of trouble like making it so natural. But like Jason Lee always sounds like he's doing he's talking like that on purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the, I mean, that's one of the complaints about his dialogue is that like everybody sort of talks like Kevin Smith. They're all very witty about pop culture and everything. But yeah, I, everything I like went back once I figured it out and I'm like, oh, all, everything that he's saying is in character for what if Brody from Mallrats was the Joker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I, I like that interpretation. I like that possibility better. I I tend to think of like, I don't know, maybe it's the the animated series version of the Joker, but there's something about him like making all these sex jokes that, yeah, I don't know if I'm prudish or I just, <laughs> right. Yeah. There's something about it or it's like, I don't know. He's, he seems like he should be kind of a corny old fashioned. Like I think of kind of Robin Williams type humor where it's like just a barrage of impressions and like jokes that aren't really that great, but yeah, it's just like constant. Um, I was I was actually thinking about like what if you had to ref- see the Joker reflected in a comedian's like sensibility, what would be your like ideal match between the comedian and the Joker? Ooh, is so is, is your is your pick Robin Williams? Yeah, I think that would be my. I my... think I think I would maybe like maybe I've been just listening to a lot of his podcasts, but uh, Conan O'Brien. Has I think that kind of like he thinks that like random things are funny that nobody else thinks are funny and that's what makes them funny. Mm-hmm. And like um, they uh, when he was writing on The Simpsons, people always talk about like there are like specific running jokes that happen in The Simpsons a lot that were his idea. Like anytime that like something like a tree falls on a log cabin and the log cabin explodes even though there's nothing combustible. <laughs> Apparently that was like always like his idea is like oh yeah if anything crashes into each other it explodes in a huge fireball. <laughs> That's the mm. Joker all all over. Yeah. And like you said, I think that, like, the Joker should have kind of like a... Like, I always think about the Joker. Maybe shouldn't sh- shouldn't say that he should be whatever, because it's malleable concept. But I always think of the Joker mm-hmm. as, like, kind of an old-fashioned, like, showbiz kind of comedian. Mm-hmm. Which is also what I think that Conan O'Brien sort of has a thing, is that he likes, he likes like, 
you know, 60s and 70s stand-up comics doing the wearing a suit and, you know, telling the the jokes up against the, the brick wall. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I guess I guess, I guess Conan. I not yeah, I don't want to see that too. <laughs> so one thing that I thought was interesting and it's actually one of my favorite parts that I didn't mention so far is that Batman at the end of issue 2 says you know, at one point, I consider you my second most dangerous villain. Which do you think the fir- was the first one like Razal Ghul? Not mm. important, I guess. But um, he says like at one time you were my se- you know my second most dangerous villain. Now you're not even my my top fifteen. Do you think that he, that Batman in that moment really means it, or is he just like trying to get into the the Joker's head? Because that seems like a good way to throw the Joker off is to be like this whole like obsession that we have. Like I don't, you're not that dangerous yeah no i I think for me it it felt like there was a it was a mix in that certainly trying to psych out the joker but Mm. it does seem like he is acting in the predictable way that batman is like accusing him of and and going to attack maxi zeus and there's not like any kind of real twist to it yeah Um, so one thing that this uh series grapples with a lot Sort of, I guess, in the end, like the, it ends up being like the the key point of the series. I guess is, uh, why doesn't Batman kill the Joker? And do you think that this comic uh, answers that to any satisfying degree? I I think like the idea of him not wanting to see death again makes sense. I mean, it's you know, it's comic book logic and it's kind of hard to like translate it to a real world in terms of what would someone do in this situation yeah um but for me it was satisfactory enough i just i didn't feel like that kind of fresh or revelatory mm. i i had sort of the same problem that you did where like he's saving the joker when like they have all the burn victims there when that happens it's like get the joker and leave the burn victims when the Joker gets mm-hmm. stabbed, it's like leave the villain who's getting away and stay with, stay with the victim. It doesn't really, you know. It's so I I think like the the central problem here is that like the really honest and true reason that the Bat, that Batman doesn't kill the Joker is because like DC does not want that to <laughs> does not want that to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And so like, I mean, you know, in comics, people come back all the time from being dead, but you know, like. The idea is that like, he doesn't take care of the Joker once and for all because then you couldn't do more Joker stories. And so, like, it's what's interesting to me, like, on a, like, a higher level about, like, Batman as a concept is that this whole, like, concept of, like, life being sacred and not willing to take a villain's life, it's really because, like, of the, you know, extra, you know, the meta kind of elements of, like, well, I, I can't kill the Joker, so I have to come up with a rudimentary mm-hmm. moral code that explains why I don't do it. And I think that's something yeah. that, like, when you call attention to it, it does sort of point out, like, how much, like you were saying, it doesn't work in the real world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to say that, like, Batman should be executing the Joker, but it's like, he blows up a whole school <laughs> full of children, mm-hmm. and nobody really brings it up a whole lot. And, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, when you're weighing these options, it's like, at some point, like, I mean, again, like, in the real world, people aren't breaking out of the mass murders aren't breaking out of jail all the time. Like the, like the Joker is. So it seems like you should either be, he gets stabbed in the heart and you take your time, go around the block a couple of times, or you mm-hmm. do maybe the more humane thing is then just keep him doped up on whatever those, 
those drugs he was on in the hospital because they seemed to be working. Yeah. He still wanted to kill Batman, but mm-hmm. he wasn't, you know, he was, he was being cool about it. <laughs> yeah. He was, he was really chill telling him like, yes, I want to murder you and defile your corpse. Yeah. I, I so I, I did think that scene in the hospital was actually one of the most interesting ones. Just kind of that exchange where like the Joker ex- expresses sympathy for him. Yeah. Um, that, by itself was one of the most interesting moments of the whole series. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that he's... I mean, Kevin Smith is definitely engaging with the question in, like, good faith. But I think it is the kind of question where, like, if you bring it up, it starts to, like, pick at, like, your suspension of disbelief with superheroes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like the it's like Superman's glasses about, like... If he wears the glasses, you just sort of let it go. But if you keep saying, like, oh, I, I can't believe that nobody notices me with these glasses, that's really dumb... Then, yeah. I, then I start I start thinking that and if you keep saying it's really implausible that the Batman that Batman doesn't let the Joker die or keep saving him but um, yeah. and, and that's not my, like my like own political view at all but it's just like in this extremely weird and unrealistic situation that never happens in real life it seems like you are not doing a good job of keeping the Joker in in Arkham Asylum mm-hmm. we need we need a new plan before he blows up the next school yes but anyway i sound like a paranoid raving <laughs> raving law and order guy here oh uh, let's you know let's i think it balances our, our podcast nicely <laughs> uh you're the the authoritarian yes <laughs> on, on one spectrum <laughs> so yeah so i mean so overall overall did you did you like it did you it really felt kind of like it went fast and there wasn't much substance to it yeah i was surprised uh, at how quickly we we got through <laughs> we just got through like describing the entire issues yeah it's like one of those things where i don't i don't think i'll think about it much and unfortunately and i yeah i, I sort of i lean more towards on the side of not liking it there instead of like liking with reservations i have like reservations like anti-reservations like i I dislike it but i like some things i'm 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 pretty conflicted on this one but there's like all that there's so much like there was kind of sort of gross about it that i also sort of don't want to make a huge effort to defend it right like like onomatopoeia like killing the sex worker is like like such a trope it's kind of ugly yeah it doesn't really add much to Maybe I maybe I am just a prude who like doesn't like the Joker talking about a Merkin. Well, I guess we're two prudes then. Yes, <laughs> that's that's the, that's the new the new podcast name. Two prudes. <laughs> we are sex negative. Yes, on this podcast. Vampirella, put some put some clothes on. <laughs> yep, I am I am really shocked at how <laughs> how how right wing this podcast has become. <laughs> So maybe we should move on to our just uh to the artwork of the series. Yeah. So um did you know that um Walt Flanagan, uh, the art the penciler, is Kevin Smith's friend? Uh I learned that after I read uh, I think most of the issues. Yeah, he is um he's the guy in Mallrats who says, Tell him Steve Dave and he's mm-hmm. like the um he's the the guidance counselor and clerks who was spinning the eggs and stuff. Hmm. And he has, so he has done um, like comics work before this. 
Yeah. And the uh, the introduction in this trade that I have um, was kind of like very defensive about like, I don't want you to think this is nepotism that I got him <laughs> to draw this comic because he's my friend. He's done other stuff. It was sort of, you know, defense, which you know, understandably, I suppose you, you know how that looks. Yeah. But I did, I did think, I did think the art was, it's not like particularly flashy or whatever, but I thought it was, it was pretty solid. Yeah. I, I thought that, you know, it's, uh, the storytelling's mostly clear. Yeah. Uh, which is a lot more than we've gotten from some, you know, some other, uh, artists we've talked about in this podcast. Yeah. And it's at times like it, you mentioned the, the Joker and the beard and I don't know, some of the scenes with his ass are kind of grotesque looking, but in a way that I think is fitting the tone at that particular moment. So mm-hmm. I, overall, I, I thought it was, it was good. And one thing that I, I did admire looking at this, that I didn't see like a lot of shortcuts. Like it's not like he's doing the, the big splash page. that's all like one color or whatever. He's drawn backgrounds and everything is pretty well, well paced. So yeah, I had, I had no, yeah. I had no real complaints about the art. Uh, any reflections on just Kevin Smith's work in general? Basically? Yeah. Like you said, like he was a big thing when I was growing up. Um, I haven't liked the new, have you seen the new, some of his newer movies? Uh, I think I last, last movie I saw by directed by him was, uh, Clerks 2. Ah. I thought that was okay. Mm-hmm. I, I saw Tusk. Yeah. I hated, I hated Tusk. In a way, like, I mm-hmm. went into that being like, this movie could be awesome. I was totally in the right headspace to enjoy a movie mm-hmm. where Justin Long has turned, surgically turned into a walrus. Yep. And that's, that's like you were saying, like, people are sort of reevaluating his overarching work. Do you have similarly complex thoughts about Kevin Smith and the the art of cinema today. <laughs> um, yes, and uh, I I think I just I have a similar experience. Or I, we talked a little bit about how it was such just so novel to have somebody who was well versed in nerd culture kind of throwing this up on the big screen back mm-hmm. in in the nineties. And like I remember seeing the first one of his first movies. Um, mall rats i saw at like 2 a.m on some weird <laughs> canadian channel that i at that time i don't think i had premium cable or anything but it had like all the swears and stuff in there mm-hmm. uh and that was kind of a a really memorable moment um so i have a lot of affection for his work uh but i think it's one of those things where i can i feel like i've grown maybe not as much as his storytelling choices have grown yeah, uh, or his his kind of sense of humor has grown, um, but I can still like look back fondly and, and uh, appreciate them for what they were. Should we get into the cannon fodder? Yes. Uh, I, as you can tell, I've been working on my segues. Uh, <laughs> So this is the segment where we try to stump each other with obscure comic trivia. Uh, the weirder and more absurd, the better. Uh, would you like me to start start us off? Sure. All right. So I am going with a, a an obscure or minor Batman villain theme this week. 
So, in the 1990s, when Bruce Wayne's spine was broken and he was temporarily replaced as Batman by the anti-hero Azrael, the new Batman encountered a pair of Second Amendment-loving hired assassins. What were the names of this quickly forgotten duo? A. Gunshy and Gunwolf <laughs> B. Pistol Whip and Backfire C. Gunhawk and Gun Bunny or D. Lock and Load oh, Those are all plausible. <laughs> With the uh, 90s penchant for compound words. <laughs> what was the second one? What was B? B was Pistol Whip and Backfire. Whether it's correct or not, I like Pistol Whip and Backfire the best. So I'm going to go with B. <laughs> the answer was C, actually. Oh. Gun Hawk and Gun Bunny. That's no good. <laughs> did you come up with Pistol Whip and, and Backfire? I did, yep. That's, you know, for, for more about this, this marketing, marketable characters, uh, <laughs> indefensibleinc at gmail.com. All right. I have to do is time travel to the 90s. Yes, and you I can will be a <laughs> top comics writer. Rich as Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. So question one for you. Um, it's about Kevin Smith. Uh, when he started his run on Daredevil, um, so it was like you said, it was like 1999, um, Jay and Silent Bob had been, been in pretty much every project that he had ever done, but he didn't want them to explicitly make an appearance in a Marvel comic. They do, however, sort of appear in issue one, uh, via suggestion in an Easter egg. What is the reference to Jay and Silent Bob in Daredevil number one? Is it A, the names Jay and Bob appear in kanji on a scroll held by one of the ninjas from the hand? Uh, B, Foggy Nelson is shown struggling with a crossword puzzle where two of the answers can be solved as Jay and Silent Bob with some letters missing. C, Jay and Silent Bob's name both appear on the speed dial of Matt Murdock's office phone in Braille. Or D, Daredevil's ex-girlfriend, the Black Widow, is given an assignment by S.H.I.E.L.D. over the phone, and her Russian dialogue, which is written in Cyrillic, asks, who the hell are Jay and Silent Bob? So is it A, Jay and Silent Bob and Kanji, oh. B, crossword puzzle, C, Braille on a, on a speed dial, or D, Cyrillic characters? Um, this, they all sound... Equally plausible. This is going to be a real shot in the dark. I'm a, um, I'm a very plausible, <laughs> plausible writer. I will go with D. The Cyrillic characters? Correct. It was actually the Braille on the uh, speed dial. Ah, okay. Which I thought was a pretty clever... I didn't figure that out, by the way. That was in, I think, Wizard. Everybody was looking, because he mentioned it ahead of time. Like, oh, I, they're, they're sort of in there, but not really... Hmm. And they revealed it in there. So. Okay, so so two swings, two misses. All right. So the minor Batman villain film freak first made his appearance in DC's New, New Earth universe in 2006. Which classic film-inspired crime did he commit at Star Labs? <laughs> a. Citizen Kane pushing the, the company's top scientist down a ramp in a sled labeled Rosebud while strapped to a gallon of nitroglycerin. <laughs> B. Public Enemy dis- disfiguring an employee by shoving an acid-soaked grapefruit in her face. C. Battleship Potemkin 
pushing a stroller full of explosives into an <laughs> office birthday party. Or D, Dr. Strangelove, riding a giant bomb dropped from a plane into the roof of Star Labs, killing dozens and himself in the process. <laughs> I want to say, again, just going on what I think would be the funniest, <laughs> would be, or the best, what I, what I would have written, the Battleship Potemkin one with the, with the, the baby carriage. You honor me, sir, but it was actually <laughs> B, public enemy, disfiguring an employee oh, was... by shoving the acid-soaked grapefruit in her face. That was that was my number two. Which is pretty gruesome. I was like, yeah. That's, <laughs> also, that's... how do you get the acid in the grapefruit? Yeah. yeah. That one, if I had to guess this one, I would not have, have in a million years have, have picked that one, but. Well, whoever wrote that missed opportunity. <laughs> the Fellowship of one, one was much better. It speaks to my Russian blood. <laughs> uh, question number two for you. In the 1950s of DC Comics, several superheroes encountered bizarre science fiction or fantasy doubles of, them, of themselves, such as Superman's Bizarro, um, Batman's encounters with the, uh, the fifth dimensional imp, Batmite, and the alien Batman of the planet Zur NR. A Green Arrow, who we don't usually think of going out for that kind of wacky cosmic stuff, had his own uh, supernatural double. Who was this double, and where were they from? Is it A, Zine Arrow, a telepathic giant from Dimension Zero, B, Space Arrow, an alien outlaw with rocket-powered arrows from Planet Q, C. Pink Arrow, a winged female fairy from the Kingdom of the Silver Springs. Or D. Brain Arrow, a robot archer with perfect aim from the future year of 2005. <laughs> oh. Hmm. Can you read me A and B again? Sure. A is Zine Arrow, a telepathic giant from Dimension Zero. And B is Space Arrow, an alien outlaw with rocket-powered arrows from Planet Q. I am going to go with B. Space Arrow? Yes, from Planet Q. It was Zine Arrow. <laughs> Telepathic Giant. <laughs> uh, it's X-E-E-N. Mm -hmm. um, they go to his planet, and they're tiny, but they solve the crime anyway. They come back home, and they keep one of his giant arrows in the Arrow Cave. Ah, He's he's also into like early '90s <laughs> hardcore and yeah yeah he's yeah he has his, he he publishes he xeroxes his own newsletters and, and magazines. So did you have a, a, another anecdote about uh, Kevin Smith in in your life? I have an embarrassing Kevin Smith related anecdote uh i was a senior in college and i was taking a class on restoration comedy in in england and um i had to give a presentation i think it was on like dialogue in those plays and i talked about how the dialogue is very stylized which is why it's not realistic but it's very clever like you might here and say a kevin smith movie and my professor looked over at me and he was like 
Which movie? Which movie are you referring to? Because I can't think of any movie that would that have any cleverness would, to them at all. I would consider like having excellent dialogue, <laughs> and I just wanted to crawl into a hole and die. Mm. Um, yeah, so I still think about that to this day. Kevin Smith, the source of your academic shame. <laughs> I, I yes. have a, I have a slightly embarrassing uh, Kevin Smith anecdote as well, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. So the uh, the first when Chasing Amy came out, uh, my parents had rented it. So I had not really I'd sort of heard about Kevin Smith, but you know I hadn't seen anything. And my parents rented it just because it was a new movie that was out at the time, mm-hmm. and they watched it and they said like the next you know the next day or whatever it was like oh you know Justin, you this movie it turns out is all about comic books <laughs> and about um you know and like the and they wanted to show me the opening scene. About if you remember, it's where you have um, Jason Lee's character is sort of like you know what do you do for the comic? And he says I ink. He explains what inking is, and like oh, so you're so you're a tracer. Mm-hmm. And so like you know like this was like this was I mean like, that's part of the thing about it being a huge deal for me is like oh they're talking about inking in a movie. It's like really yeah. speaks to me, and there's like all the all that like you know sort of cool indie stuff from around that time. So mm-hmm. I watched this and like this is awesome, and then my parents were like, oh, but we can't watch you let you watch the rest. Because it's because it's mm. absolutely inappropriate, uh-huh. and so yeah, I was I was hosed that I couldn't mm. see the rest of it. And then like the next day, I went out and I rented it, and I went to order my friend's house, and we watched it. So that was the, oh, okay. that is actually all my entire uh, Kevin Smith appreciation and fanhood stems back from uh, my parents not wanting to show me that movie. So now that we've talked about a comic we didn't quite enjoy that much, uh, we're going to offer some recommendations as an alternative. And so if you'd like to start us off. Sure. Um, so to balance out, we had, you know, I said some things about Kevin Smith, some criticisms. Um, he is a, you know, huge celebrity and his a podcast emperor. So I'm sure he's not going to be too um, upset by what we think about uh, this 10 year old comic of his, but even so I have decided to recommend a comic of his that I did enjoy, which is the green arrow story arc quiver, which ran in the first 10 issues of the rebooted green, green arrow series in 2001 with art by Phil Hester and Andy parks. Uh, Oliver queen, the original green arrow had been killed off about six years earlier when the series came out and like a bunch of other classic DC characters in the nineties was replaced with a younger, Second generation version, in this case, his literal long lost son, Connor Hawk. Uh, Smith had been a fan of the original since Mike Grell's run in the 80s and wanted to bring Ollie back. He does so in a story that really plays around with like the sandbox of the DC universe. Um, he seemed pretty knowledgeable about a lot of like the then current continuity. Like there were zero hour references and final night references, which are 90s crossovers that I wouldn't necessarily expect a Hollywood director to be familiar with. Um, it's very, it's often pretty funny without trying quite so hard or using the word poo quite so often as Batman mm-hmm. cacophony does. Um, a lot of the humor involves an Oliver Queen who's been away for the past several years, meeting like the nineties bare chested harpoon handed Aquaman and being like, that's not Aquaman. Where's these, he has short hair and he wears his orange shirt. So there's that sort of stuff. Um, it's also really interesting in that it kicked off the rebirth trend that Jeff Johns, 
uh, would go to a few years later when he brought back the Hal Jordan Green Lantern and then the Barry Allen Flash. Um, but at the same time, not killing the new ones, sort of like embracing the concept of legacy and making like a multi-generational family. Um, so you might or might not like like the rebirth trend, but like Kevin Smith was on the vanguard of that. So he seemed to see, maybe see what was coming down the pike. And then, as I was alluding to earlier, his very wordy Daredevil series from just a few years before kind of prefigured like the Brian Michael Bendis school of like really heavily dialogued and decompressed comics that sort of like led the way for that. So I think that like in general, whatever you think of Kevin Smith, like as a comic book writer, he's been like really weirdly unexpectedly ahead of the curve. Yeah. Like I just, I would say like, if you want to know like what the future of comic books, mainstream comic books is going to be, ask him like, what would you do for, you know, Iron Man? (laughs) Whatever he says, do that in five years. It's going to be huge. I would not have made that connection, but I do. I do also remember. I haven't revisited it since it came out, but I remember liking his Daredevil run mm-hmm. um, as well. So I am going to cheat a little bit because I haven't read any comics that I haven't already recommended um, lately. So I am going to recommend a video game uh, featuring a character you know and love called the Batman. And it's actually Batman the Telltale Game Season 1. I'm only three episodes in, so I can't speak to the quality of the whole game. But uh, if you know the Telltale Game, or if you don't know them, they are basically choose-your-own-adventure games. Um, And this series has a pretty interesting take on Batman's early years. There's... There are some interesting twists, particularly regarding, and I'm verging on spoiler territory territory here, but I'll keep it as vague as possible, uh, but particularly about the Wayne family. And uh, I've heard kind of mixed reviews about how much the choices you make actually matter in the game. Um, so that's kind of, I'll find out at the end whether, whether that really played any role, but for me, at least, as a super Batman nerd, it's fun to try to pick the most Batman answer <laughs> to different dialogue and make different decisions based on how I think Batman would react. Um, also, there are some visual glitches that didn't get fixed because the company went bankrupt, uh, and they're kind of funny to look at. So, yeah, it's it's worth it. Um, don't go into it expecting, like, Arkham night or Arkham City level of interactivity and action, but it's basically a good interactive Batman story. So I'm not like much of a video game person despite my son, but um is so is Telltale the name of the company that makes or the developer? Yeah, yep. Oh, okay, because I was I was reading it like like the Telltale game, like the Telltale Heart, oh. but like <laughs> it's the it's the popping of that hideous trouble board. <laughs> Yeah, so, that makes a lot not, more sense. It's not a new Batman villain either, like <laughs> Telltale, which actually sounds better than Onomatopoeia, to be honest. But. Yeah, actually, that's we will we will convene with our uh, our own Batman pitch mm-hmm. after we so, <laughs> we'll take this offline. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think that does it for us uh, for tonight. You can reach us 
uh, on Twitter and Instagram at, at Indefensible Inc. You can email us at indefensibleinc at gmail.com. You can check us out on Facebook. You can get uh, Indefensible Inc. from your standard podcast, Catcher Apps, your Apple Podcasts, your Stitcher. You can like and subscribe and do all the other things that are good for our algorithm. <laughs> but um, So we encourage you to do that and to reach out to us if you have any suggestions for uh, stories to cover. I'm sure you've read a fair number of terrible comics, so you can inflict those upon us. We enjoy it. and But we also enjoy sort of taking the bullet for you and reading the things that you don't really have to read. Yeah, and if I may say, we, I, I think we both have a little bit of a blind spot for recent terrible comics. So if yeah. there's anything out there that's on your radar, let us know. Mm-hmm. But um, until then... I have been Justin Zydok. And I've been Ryan McClure. And you have a good night. Thanks.